This week on the Nonprofit News Feed, well, we have news for you. It is the week of December 6th, so we're, we're nearing the end of this, this rodeo. Nick, what do we have in the news, though? Sure. Happy December and almost last couple weeks of 2021. But for news, of course, we have to recap Giving Tuesday. Giving Tuesday was last Tuesday and the annual day of generosity generated, according to the folks at givingtuesday.org, approximately $2.7 billion in donations. This represents an increase of 9% over the previous year. And it's great to see, George. And we didn't quite meet our three billion prediction, but we still saw an increase, which I think is a net positive. When we think about all the other external factors going into this year, uh, inflation, concerns about new variants, uh, limited participation or a diminished participation in political campaigns, all sorts of kind of conflating factors that might depreciate giving, we still saw an increase, which I think is something to celebrate. What's your takeaway from these numbers? I was hoping the 3 billion number would be hit. And by the way, we're only, you know, 300 million between friends off. And this is the initial number. I wouldn't be surprised if they revise it in in a couple weeks or a couple months and say, oh, actually we hit this number. I think the, the unlucky nature of the stock market literally crashing uh, on well, crashing, getting serious haircuts uh, on that Friday, on Black Friday, leading into it, and the note that inflationary, uh, you know, the inflationary warnings were no longer going to be sort of temporary or transitory, but like, no, no, this this is here. So I think there's still a lot more meat on the bone, so to speak, for forgiving in December, and you know, we're we're watching it, and always, always, always rooting for Giving Tuesday as a day of giving. Absolutely. We'll see where this, uh, how this trend plays out going into end of year. And maybe we'll see that people who were spooked in the, the couple days leading up to Giving Tuesday around Thanksgiving, maybe things will be a bit calmer over the next couple of weeks. We will see. Speaking of donations and giving, our next story is about an organization that a lot of people probably haven't thought about in a bit, but the Clinton Foundation in a filing announced that its donation revenue has dropped approximately 75% since 2016 when Hillary Clinton was running for president. So the Clinton Foundation is an international-facing organization with both international and domestic programs, but they focus on things like sustainability and leadership development and a whole host of social issues. And while the organization says it was able to fully fund programs by tapping into its significant endowment, this should definitely, I think, be something of a warning sign for organizations that rely on the name value of their founders or their celebrity partners for revenues. And this is really challenging for an organization as big as the Clinton Foundation. This is a big organization. This is not a a small little nonprofit. Um, As big as the Clinton Foundation to maintain momentum beyond the, I'd say, uh, you know, public cachet of the, the founders that started the organization as the Clintons kind of recede into a little bit more private spaces or become 
less public. So kind of an interesting, interesting story here. Interesting trend. Yeah, I think there's three potential narratives here that I've seen. One is, as you mentioned, when you've got celebrity appended foundation, the founder, the hero as this icon that generates this initial boom and interest in the organization. And that goes from celebrity to political figures. And there are many that have to make that transition from sort of the the founder story narrative celebrity to ongoing support because of the amazing work you do. You have to switch to programmatic, frankly, reputation and excellence. And and that's a hard transition. Number two is the in-person fundraising events. Like it's catching up, right? I think you had that 2020 grace period where people were all right with that. All right, we'll do it on Zoom kind of game. And now we're still not necessarily having what a lot of organizations especially I would say something like the Clinton Foundation, which does sort of play on that, you know, pay for access type of event as a who's who in the in the room and, and driving revenue. Like if that's not able to drive what it's supposed to, like I think there's still COVID impacts and maybe uh, the carryover COVID impacts of not having in-person. And number three is a bit harder to explain sensitively. So I'll just drive a truck at it. I think there is potential issues when we talk about political active bodies, right? Political figures that run foundations and essentially can have money come into that group as a sort of, we're here to support you. And by the way, if this bill passes, and by the way, if this bridge is built, and by the way, if this sort of special interest gets represented, it opens up a side door that makes me a little uncomfortable in the same way that the Trump hotels, which foreign dignitaries would buy out, maybe made me a little uncomfortable saying like, hey, we'll stay here if you want. And so, you know, I I think it's not a coincidence that as the, the Clintons and their political power begin to fade, so to do certain types of donations and you begin to ask a question, or at least I would have, were they donations or were they interested parties in access to political power? Um, So I, you know, I highlighted it here, you know, write us, tell me I'm wrong, tell me I'm right. But those are the three thoughts I have for you. I like those three thoughts. There's an, there's actually not to dwell too much on this, but there's a very interesting and potentially problematic relationship, not that the Clinton Foundation is an example of this, of organizations, particularly in D.C., nonprofit organizations that get a lot of foreign donations that potentially peddle political influence, Um, particularly foundations, think tanks, and that's a whole other world. But those are charitable or or those are tax-exempt organizations, largely. So interesting narrative, but I appreciate those thoughts. Moving into the summary, our first story is about executives and VCs launching a new nonprofit to promote responsible innovation. This story is reported out by Fast Company, and it says that a couple of execs, uh, former Stripe execs, it would seem, are coming together to form a nonprofit to help early startup phase companies really incorporate innovation responsibly into their kind of core operations. So this is 
kind of along the lines of ESG, environmental, social, and and governments, and and proactive uh, sustainability when building a company related to social sustainability, environmental sustainability. These are some of the things that go into that framework. But I think the idea here is that this nonprofit helps those companies create a framework to become responsible. Um, So I think this is a a growing trend we're seeing both bottom-up and top-down of responsibility, corporate social responsibility, um, becoming really important uh, broadly within the market. And when you talk about like... um, you know, index funds like responsible uh, investing and and all these things, and I think all these things, all these different threads are kind of tied together. But George, what are your thoughts on on this? I think it's interesting that these executives have chosen the vehicle of a nonprofit immediately using that standard of trust and transparency as what they would go with. You know, for instance, for example, you know, Mark Zuckerberg famously, you know, didn't choose a C3, a nonprofit as the vehicle for his foundation so that he could technically do more in terms of investing and moving his money around, which is all well and good. So I I like that they chose the vehicle of a nonprofit for the, you know, the purposes of transparency. They also make this note in here that ESG companies, uh, you know, and I'll quote, Our strong belief is that ESG movement is not sufficient for the world, he says. If you are sitting in a boardroom thinking about about your ESG strategy, it's probably too late. And so they're trying to get to the founding of it. So not just sort of lipstick on a pig, but saying like, no, no, no. When you start the process, it should be baked in. Because frankly, if you're sitting in a boardroom layering on an ESG strategy, it, uh, it looks more like marketing you know, from, from where many people sit as opposed to the intentionality of what it is. Absolutely. That's a good point. And we always want those strategies to be real and not just merely marketing. So an interesting story. Moving along, this is a story from Texas, from Hidalgo, Texas, by the local Fox 56 affiliate there. And it's a story about a nonprofit organization called Practice Mercy Foundation that is providing support to indigenous women asylum seekers at the border. So the big news at the border this week is that the Biden administration will likely extend the MPP, which is the Migrant Protection Protocol, I believe, um, which would essentially um, elongate the Trump administration policy of forcing migrants to wait on the other side of the border during asylum hearings. So this is one of many nonprofit organizations that are serving people. And I think it's interesting that they're focusing especially on indigenous people. Um, and lots of, I think, uh, Indigenous folks from all across Latin America end up in the border. And it's really complicated for these organizations because these folks they speak different languages, they have different cultures, they come from radically different places, and trying to provide support can be really tricky. So it's cool to see a nonprofit organization focusing exclusively on helping indigenous folks who wind up at the border. And the the, the tragic situation is ongoing. George and I, you know, we, we had the pleasure of working. One of our clients is an organization that worked a lot on issues specifically related to this. And these are real people whose lives are at stake kind of by 
they live week to week by announcements and different protocols and rules and laws and things like that. So it's nonprofits that are filling the void here. It's not the U.S. government. It is nonprofits that are providing the emergency services to these people. So it's really cool to see. The Migrant Protection Protocol, MPP, uh, which began on the Trump administration, there is a court order to put it back in place. So this is going to be a narrative, sadly, throughout the certainly end of the year. And, you know, work from this nonprofit and many others is going to be needed and hopefully highlighted. Absolutely. Our next story comes from the Boston Globe, and the title is A Nonprofit Launches Black City Hall to Address Gaps in Access to Critical Services. And I wanted to highlight this one because I think the concept is really cool. We have in Boston a a city with a a long history of racism, unfortunately. Um, And the article begins by saying that Black Bostonians uh, often have more trouble accessing the economic, social, and health support they need, particularly from local government. So this nonprofit seeks to fill in the gaps, quote unquote, to engage the community with services that they they need and should have access to. Um, so it can help people with securing food assistance, scheduling a COVID-19 shot, um, helping them with their credit. Uh, it's really interesting. And they kind of go above and beyond in that. But I really like this framework. I think this is a, a cool organization um, seeing a need and filling a need. Just to put that in context, too, as we're talking about Boston, a 2015 study found that African-Americans in that greater Boston area had an average net worth of $8 compared with $247,000 for their white counterparts. I didn't dive into the study too far, but even if they're off by an order of magnitude, it still is a startling disparity. Without a doubt. Again, nonprofits, hopefully trying to bridge that gap there. Uh, George, this is not our feel-good story, but I think we're feeling pretty good about this. Uh, This comes from our partner, The Giving Block, and they announced that $2.4 million have been donated for Crypto Tuesday. I think that means it's catching on. Um, George, what are your thoughts about crypto donations uh, as we move into these kind of uh, days of giving? It looks like Ethereum was the most donated and I'm not a, a crypto person. So I'll let you, <laughs> I'll let you talk some more about this. Yeah. I think it's, it's fun to look at maybe 2.4 million doesn't sound like a lot, but it's getting going on a day of giving and for a community of crypto philanthropists that need to be brought into the conversation, need to be considered highlighted in every way possible because Frankly, that is where the most millionaires are being minted, pun intended, right now. And they need to be brought into how philanthropy can work. And, you know, we're proud to work with uh, Giving Block. And, you know, 2.4, it starts small and it, it grows from there. And it's been growing, as we've mentioned, in different articles through across the year. But glad to see that Crypto Tuesday is, is getting going. And we'll see them again next year for sure. Absolutely. All right. Now, our real feel-good story of the podcast today comes from the Times West Virginian, celebrating local journalism here at the podcast. And the title is A Big Day for Miniature Horses, a ribbon-cutting open 
therapy nonprofits grant supported new barn. Um, so there's a nonprofit called On Eagles Wings that uses horsemanship to help folks with disabilities. Um, and they recently celebrated the completion of its new barn to house its miniature horses. What's not to love about this? I, I, I all wins, uh, all wins. Uh, I think it's really cool that um, uh, nonprofits are able to help folks with disabilities who otherwise wouldn't have access to really unique and creative um, forms of ha- therapy that can help them. And I know that for a lot of folks, working with animals actually can be extremely therapeutic and um, really, really helpful. So this is really cool to see and to celebrate. Yeah, I think this is the this is a one of the better or best uses of our relationship with with horses uh, equine assisted therapy uh, it can encompass more than just riding horses it's therapeutic riding and assistance for learning and mental health and you know the horses clearly are taken care of well in this uh, environment and sadly i have to also call out in the news that medina spirit oh one of the sort of Kentucky Derby uh, winners of, of last year under Bob Baffert uh, died on the track in practice. Um, one of 75 horses that passed away under Bad Bath, Bob Baffert. And so I think there is great ways of bringing horses in concert with, with people. And this is one of them. And I don't believe horse racing is, but I brought our story down. <laughs> I think <laughs> coming back to it, equine therapy for the win. Love seeing this. All right, that's what I got for you. That's what I got for you, Nick. Uh, we hope you are having a good ongoing giving season that you use Giving Tuesday to kick off your giving. And show notes, resources, nonprofitnewsfeed.com has them for you. Thanks for listening. Thanks. This has been Using the Whole Whale Podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com slash university to keep learning with us. Thanks as always to Greg Thomas Music.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 